Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. BlakeRadio.com. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. It is Tuesday, October 27th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and I am back in Panama. Thailand was quite an experience. The internet was, well, first week. So um, we have recorded for the past two weeks, but no live show. So today's topic is football. Who is in greater danger, the fans or the players? And how dangerous is football really? How hazardous is it? As always, more shocking news from the medical industrial complex itself. Now, many people either have children who play sports or they play sports themselves. There's this big movement to get people moving and kind of out of our chairs. And as we do this, we have to take a look at what our risks really are. So we're told, oh, don't be sedentary because you'll get all kinds of awful diseases, maybe a heart attack, maybe Alzheimer's, who knows. Anyway, uh, definitely being active is considered to be a healthy thing. So now we doctors are being alerted that, wait, wait, if children or adults decide to play vigorous sports, let's say football, that they need um, a medical consultant kind of at their elbow. So let's take a look at kind of these contradictory um, edicts. And so today, I'm going to take a look at the issue of sports and how dangerous is it really, and what is the medical industrial complex recommending, and what is the evidence for this? All right, so here we go. As many of you know, I get my information from Medscape Family Medicine, and this is an internationally uh, recognized source for information for doctors and their medical education. So if your doctor is keeping up, then this is what's in his inbox. He gets the same information that we're going to consider here. Okay, so we doctors get this challenging um, piece of literature in our inbox that says, are you ready to tackle some football maladies? That's a big word for uh, injuries. And 
Frank Tellens is a popular sport. Uh, youth sport participation in football is third place behind basketball and baseball. Uh, but all high school, well, high school sports football declined by 2.3% in 2012 to 2013. And youth participation in all organized sports has declined. Uh, and they say this is a trend towards uh, inactivity. And so I personally think that it might be a trend towards more parents just saying no to playing taxi for all the uh, travel back and forth to practice and telling their kid to go play in the backyard. But that's just my opinion as a parent having lived through the ordeal of organized adolescent sports. Uh, and so what they say, though, is there's a concern about concussions and other injuries that can cause permanent harm. Now, I'm going to look at football, which is recognized to be the most injury-prone and hazardous sport in terms of concussion. So we're going to take a look at this high-risk sport and look at the types of medical intervention available, how effective they are, and really compare that risk to other risks we might face uh, in our day-to-day lives. Okay. So I'm saying the concerns of injury are well-founded. Uh, because 61% of retired players in the National Football League report having had a concussion. Well, a concussion is basically a head injury followed by a change in consciousness, let's say dizziness or headache. I'm surprised the numbers on the 61%. I guess the um, place kickers don't get uh, these head injuries. And so they suggest to us physicians that watching from the safety of a sofa or stadium seat is one thing where the greatest dangers to one's health are posed by alcohol and sitting. Now, the truth of the matter is, being a uh, sports spectator would we'll just say that that's being a regular U.S. Uh, resident with no greater risk of death or injury than the average. And the average is the numbers you get by taking total risk and body by total population. All right. And so contemplation of football-associated injuries is wide and had contact injuries, heat stroke, stress injuries, catastrophic joint injuries, rhabdomyolysis, that means uh, destruction of red blood cells may leak all their contents to the point where it causes muscle pain and maybe even kidney compromise. So an example of rhabdomyolysis would be bruising, just for your information. And of course, uh, sudden death. So in 2014, there were six deaths directly related to football played at any level. At any level means high school uh, and uh, professionals. So what to keep that number in mind? So what we're preventing, if anything, would be six deaths and this is related to professional and high school sports, okay, so six steps. Now, there's uh, heat strokes, and they had to go all the way back to 2001 to the preventable tragedy in Minnesota Vikings training camp, not the game, training camp, in which uh, a player died uh, from heat strokes. He's wearing his full uh, uniform. 
And they're pointing out also that 9,000 high school football athletes are treated every year for uh, heat stroke. And heat stroke is a third leading cause of death in, I guess, high school football athletes. That's a pretty narrow uh, spectrum there. What that would mean then is that the high school football athletes actually have a pretty safe life here uh, off the football field. And so from 2005 to 2009, that's four years, a period, 3.6 deaths per year occurred in organized sports. So this is an epidemic, they tell us. Now, although prompt treatment of overheating can be life-saving, primary prevention is far more critical and is the law in many states. Now, here we have the nose of the camel under the tent. So we're telling the doctor this is a law in many states, and so let's take the ball pun intended, and run with it and um, see if we can't give our patients more rules to live by. Uh, so how do you prevent sleep strokes? Do they tell us, the doctor, if he's reading this? No, they don't. They go on to sudden cardiac death. So let me digress and talk about how to prevent heat strokes. Many ways to prevent heat stroke. The first way to prevent heat stroke is to drink plenty of water. Second way to prevent heat stroke is to wear this full dress uniform as little as possible. Another way is to literally apply ice packs to players uh, before and after their plays, and also to encourage players who feel hot to just take their clothes off and go shop. Now, this is very, very inconvenient because uh, if you've ever put on a football outfit or had a kid who played football and saw all the paraphernalia that they put on, taking these things off and putting them on is a, is a pretty big ordeal. Um, but again, we're talking about 3.6 runs up to four deaths a year. So that's heat stroke. Another way to prevent heat stroke, of course, is if it's hot outside, don't play. Football is a winter sport. There's a reason for that. Uh, the sport generally played, uh, you know, November to January, February. So another way to prevent this, of course, is not to practice in the summertime, or uh, in this case, was pro player had a problem, the ambient temperature was 91 degrees. So, don't play football in full dress uniforms in the heat. So, sudden cardiac death is another possible source of uh, death or demise from playing football. And so they define this, and this is interesting, sudden cardiac death is defined as an event, oh, we'll clarify this, event meaning death. It's non-traumatic, most no injury, non-violent, then no injury, or uh, bullet or something, and unexpected death. You can just stop right there. Uh, within six hours of previously witnessed normal health. Now, this is important because it says sudden cardiac arrest. We can just cross that out because actually, whenever someone dies, their heart stops. So that is redundant. But the interesting thing to understand about this is if a person drops dead suddenly from a nonviolent cause, whatever it might be, and they were to witness to be in 
normal health six hours prior. It's a presumed heart attack. That's interesting. So no other cause is entertained. This, by the way, this helps to pad the cardiac statistics, this fear information. So this is uh, not common, but it affects two per 100,000 athletes annually in the United States. And they say some of these injuries occur in basketball and football for two-thirds. And it's more frequent among black athletes. That's interesting. They know it's more frequent among black athletes, but precise figures are elusive. So if precise figures are elusive, how can you say with certainty that's more frequent among one population than another. I don't know, but that's science for you. Okay, so for many years, evidence has pointed to structural heart abnormalities as the most common cause in young athletes. And this is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That means one part of the heart is enlarged this way a bicep muscle might be enlarged. And now I say, well, this structural heart abnormality might be more common in the general population than previously believed. In other words, it might not be an abnormality, but it may be an anomaly. What's the difference? An abnormality is a structural feature that is different from what most people have and the cause of disease, the abnormality. An anomaly is something that's different from the norm but not associated with disease. So, um, an abnormality might be having three fingers on one hand, say, instead of five. And an anomaly might be uh, having an index finger that's the same length as a middle finger. So that's the difference. And so what this suggests then is if this so-called abnormality actually exists in a very high portion of a healthy population, then it might really be what we call an anomaly. And so what you're saying is it's a relatively low event phenomenon. Now, low event, let's get this straight, is two per hundred thousand a year. Or let's say one per 50,000. Now remember, chances of dropping dead in the United States are eight per thousand, or 80 per 10,000. So, so eight per thousand people drop dead every year. Or this is 800 per 100,000. So the 800 per 100,000 deaths per year, a chance of dying, one or two of those might be attributed to sports. So I hope you're getting a picture here. Okay. So despite being a low event phenomenon, when this occurs, sudden cardiac death, in a healthy athlete, the public react with shock and dismay. Well, I don't know about that. And questions arise as to how such a death could have been prevented. So again, preventing something that happens with a frequency of one per 50,000, you, you might have to shrug your shoulders on that. And if you're taking out health insurance, or health insurance, but event insurance, I wouldn't even insure that kind of event. All right. So pre-participation athletic screening 
That means the doctor entered the picture here with very expensive tests. You're talking about EKG, maybe some type of scanning, but a process costing between three hundred and ten thousand dollars. So questions arise for how a death could have been prevented. So pre-participation athletic screening to detect potentially lethal heart disease is typically part of this conversation. Now, they say part of the conversation, not part of the process. So they're saying a lot of times it's not done. So the value of the most sensitive screening test, the 12-week EKG, is controversial. In fact, there is no controversy. The EKG screening test is pretty much unreliable in separating people who will not have a cardiac event from people who will have a cardiac event in the future. In fact, the value of the EKG in detecting an ongoing heart attack is now being seriously questioned. And so you have to realize that the value of, a heart, of an EKG in predicting a heart attack that has not yet happened is pretty much zero. So let's see what they say. The 12-week EKG is not currently recommended. One limitation is the fact the 12-week EKG will detect only 60% of patients who have a heart abnormality or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So we have 60% of these patients detected, 40% undetected. And of the ones that are detected, fewer than one in a thousand or one in 10,000 are going to go on to have a heart problem, even under severe stress. So what we have then is the predictive value of the EKG is just about zero. But they're suggesting that we doctors should have the authority to do a pre-participation athletic screening to detect these things, even though, again, the screening has pretty much zero predictive value. Let's see what else we can do for the football season. Long QT syndrome. This is an EKG uh, finding. So, some athletes who died suddenly were found to have normal cardiac structures and autopsy. And these deaths might be caused by hereditary ion channel pathology, long QT syndrome. No, stop right there. So you can ion channels, but ions go through these channels. And so if an athlete has an unusual blend of ions, think electrolytes, think drinking lots of sport rehydration drinks, then the athlete is going to have abnormal electrolytes slash ions, which is indistinguishable from an ion channel disease. So either way, you're going to get an electronic reflection of an imbalance. So when they're saying is that might be caused, might be means we have no evidence of it, we don't know, by long QT syndrome and by various arrhythmias. And so there's a potentially lethal arrhythmia called torsade point. And torsade point again, look it up, T-O-R-S-A-D-E-S space D-E space P-O-I-N-T-E-S. Its primary cause is medication. So take the athlete off medication and you don't have a problem with that. And so this 
EKG abnormality in athletes is usually a cause for disqualification from competitive sports, according to prevailing guidelines. So, recent activity, now they're saying, suggests complete avoidance of physical activity in sports with children diagnosed with these EKG problems might be unnecessary. And several recent studies have demonstrated good outcomes with children who have these EKG abnormalities when they were allowed to participate in sports while adhering to treatment and monitoring. So now I'm saying, wait, let the kids do sports, but have them keep regular doctor's appointments, get treated, and get monitored. What we're doing here then is we're taking the cost of participating in sports, which is already high enough, the poor parents got to buy a uniform for the kid, transport them back and forth to practice. Now you're asking the parent to put out a couple thousand bucks a season for monitoring. And then all this is something that happens with the frequency of at best one in 50,000. So as with all sudden cardiac events, prompt intervention on the field can be, in other words, it's not always, life-saving. In the absence of head injury, any athlete who seems to be bowing or kneeling, followed by collapse, should be assumed to have a life-threatening cardiac event, and an automatic external defibrillator should be obtained immediately. So, if you've been to a game, a basketball game, a football game, athletes bow, and athletes bow and kneel quite a bit. But they say followed by collapse. So I'm going to say collapse. So the person collapses, they're going to assume a heart problem. Again, this may not be reasonable when you know that hyperthermia or excessive heat is even more frequent a problem. So what we found then is our reasons for intervention in the lives of these athletes are pretty minimal. In other words, we're, we're preventing as doctors uh, an event that occurs once every 50,000 athletes per year. And so if you can justify subjecting 50,000 athletes to a method of screening, monitoring, and manipulation under the pretense of early detection of that one athlete that would have died and preventing that death, that's a pretty big moneymaker. It's a very big moneymaker. But here's the compartment syndrome or exertional rhabdomyolysis. And this is a 22-year-old black college football player. I'm not sure if it would have been different had he been white, but let's go along with this. Presented in the emergency department two days after an off-season workout, severe pain in his thighs, back, and black urine. Last studies showed he had increased creatinine kinase, that means his red blood cells broke open and kidney problems, and he got dialysis. And measurements of compartment pressures indicated bilateral anterior lateral compartment syndrome due to rhabdomyolysis. This is all very complex, but it showed that he had severe bruising and collection of blood in his muscles. And so, of course, they did emergency fasciotomy. Sounds um, very scientific, but just take a knife and you cut from about two inches above the knee and slash all the way up almost to the hip and allow the flesh to uh, lay open and you squeeze out the bruise, the blood from the bruise. And 
in this case, uh, he lived. So he um, went home after 24 hours. Ouch. And retinomyolysis, it used to be, let's see, the, in medical school, is a disease of drummers. Yes, drummers. So every time a drummer hits the drum and his palm bangs on the drum, it actually creates a vibration that breaks open blood cells. So if this drummer drums for several hours, let's say, and then he can work several days in a row, he's got a few gigs, then he can break enough red blood cells open to stress his kidneys and um, destroy them. So a great reason for drummers to uh, work short stints. And so they mentioned a professional Redskins defensive lineman, Albert Hainsworth, doesn't sound black to me, but might be. Denver Broncos safety uh, developed the compute compart- acute compartment syndrome and lost his, nearly, nearly lost his life. Uh, and then um, intense squats were blamed for another incident where a high school person was hospitalized. So what we're talking about here is conditions that while they're unpleasant are not deadly and uh, don't seem to have permanent consequences. And they're very rare. This is the key. Whenever you're looking at uh, some kind of scary condition, you have to take a look at what are the chances. And concussion is the big uh, gorilla in the room. Everyone's worried about getting a head injury with football or with their kids or themselves as they play. Uh, and so what they're saying is, even in the NFL, the crushing tackles, high-impact injuries, only 9% of these events are accompanied by a loss of consciousness. That's very low. The incident in high school sports is like 10%. So, however, the volume of athletes who sustain concussions is daunting, they say. Well, it's not really daunting. Previously, we were told it's 61% in a career, which is, I think, awesome, that only 61% of football players in the space of a career get a concussion. That's pretty amazing. So, concussions... Uh, are 4 to 10% of all injuries and happen mostly during practice, not so much in games, which is interesting. Um, so the NFL report, the concussion sustained during practice, regular games, was down by 12% compared with the previous year. Down 12% from what they don't really tell us. We do a number of 61%, which may be well, again, that's the career number. So let's take a look at uh, head injuries, because that's, like, huge. And there's even a society on head injuries. A whole society devoted to increasing um, awareness on uh, sports injuries. And so... This is called um, headcasecompany.com, and they focus on concussions and what to do and the concussion rates per sport. And in football, the concussion rate, ready for this, is 76 per 100,000. And this is the highest concussion rate for all um, the case of high school sports. So let's take a look at what 76 per 100,000 means. Well, it means about seven 
for eight in um, 10,000 chances of sports injury concussion, maximum. And these uh, injury rates go as low as seven. Uh, actually, boys baseball is 4.6 to 5 incidents per 100,000 uh, times the person plays the sport. So in other words, you have to include practices. Let's do the math here. Let's, let's compare this to something like um, car accidents. So the most recent year for which we have information is 2010, where there's 5.4 million car crashes and 2.2 million injuries. Right, so 2.2 million injuries in car accidents annually. That, with a population of 309 million, or swimming everyone rides in cars, uh, is 7 in 1,000 injuries in car accidents every year. So we'll just put this on par with concussions. 7 in 1,000 car injuries per year, every year. So the concussion has a frequency of 7 in 10,000 chances of occurring. So each time a kid goes on the field to play football, there's a chance of 7 in 10,000 that he might get an injury, in this case called a concussion. So until your kid plays 100 games in a year, your child has a greater chance of being injured in the car on the way to practice than in the game itself. So that's uh, the, the injury risk for the relative risk. So if you take your kid yourself even, um, that the dangers of football or whatever sport you're considering are um, awful, then take a look at or compare it to something like being a passenger in a car. So the real deal here is every day we get involved in something, say, not every day, but every year certainly, driving in a car, being a passenger in a car that has an injury rate of 7 in 1,000. That's it. 7 in 1,000. We'll call that the acceptable injury rate in terms of traumatic injury. Now, another thing you take a look at is the death rate uh, in America per year from all causes um, Accidents, homicide, uh, medical intervention, which is just a plain killing, or medical cause, add it all up, is eight per thousand per year. And so, what we're looking at with this sports risk is something that's two per 50,000. So, what we're preventing here in terms of head injury and death is something that's actually less harmful and less bothersome, certainly than A, riding in a car, or B, sitting in the stands as a spectator. Then we have second impact syndrome. And this basically says that the second head injury is more damaging than the first. So if the kid or a person adult gets a head injury and it seems, hey, everything's okay, put them back in the game, then the second head injury, if it occurs when they return to play, can cause uh, brain swelling and potentially death. And so they go on to say there is controversy as to whether second impact syndrome actually exists. 
and its incidence is unknown. Now, this is important to get a grip on because this is the way new diseases are manufactured and new diseases are created and new reasons to do more testing and introduce more drugs. So we have here is second impact syndrome. As a doctor reading this, I think, oh my God, ooh, I better watch out for this and prevent this. And if I'm um, an athletic doctor for a team and a guy or a gal gets a head injury, I don't want to return to the game because we might get a second head injury causing potentially death. But wait, but wait. We don't know if this really exists, and its incidence is unknown. So what does that mean? Unknown means it's so small you can't measure it. And so I think it's important as citizens concerned about our health to recognize these things, to recognize when we're being presented with an illness and a definition of an illness for something that no one knows exists in the instance it is not measurable. So as one study they say, high school and college athletes found 94 possible events over a 13-year period. So 94 over 13, maybe it happened seven times a year, and only two of them occur at the college level. And these findings may underscore concerns about comparatively less rigorous monitoring of younger players. Again, this is a bit, hey, Doc, let's get involved here. Let's monitor these players, pull them in for doctor visits, do tests on them for a condition that we don't know even exists. In the NFL study of traumatic brain injury, no cases of second impact syndrome were detected during the six-year study period. So no case of this syndrome were detected in professional players in the six-year study period. Furthermore, there were no cases of this condition reported in the history of the NFL. This is the NFL, high-impact professional players, uh, they play to win, and this syndrome has never been detected among them, yet this is considered to be a reason to have increased rigorous monitoring of younger players. Then we have chronic traumatic encephalopathy. This just means repeated head injuries again and again and again and again. And these studies on this syndrome suggest Head injuries sustained at a younger age may disrupt neurodevelopmental processes. But wait, we know the first head injury is not a problem. And so, if someone worried about such things, you can just keep playing until you get a head injury and say, okay, have my first head injury, I'm done. Or you can play the odds to get your odds of dropping dead from these sports. Two to a head injury is. Uh, Two in 50,000. So that sounds pretty safe to me. Spinal cord injury, and they say spinal cord injuries are less common than head injuries and are potentially catastrophic. The risk has decreased over the past 30 years because of rule changes that prohibit. Uh, head-first blocking tackle, and, of course, better sideline care. Fortunately, majority of cervical spine injuries that neck in football are minor, full recovery. 
business is point two per hundred thousand, or in other words, two per million, or one per five hundred thousand. Yeah, at the high school level, and two per hundred thousand at the collegiate level. Again, one in fifty thousand versus one in half a million. Despite the low incidence, cervical spine injuries account for a significant proportion of permanent injuries sustained in football. And they cite, of course, Daryl Singletary. In 1973, uh, developed quadriplegia after a tackle. So 1973 was a long time ago. So again, we're looking here at pretty rare, uh, non-near, imaginary risks. Catastrophic contact injury. Again, if you don't like contact injuries, don't play contact sports. But let's just say you do play contact sports. Uh, okay. So these pro football players at risk for any number of career-ending injuries in port, but relatively rare example is hip subluxation or dislocation. This ended the career of a claimed Oakland Raiders running back and Heisman Trophy winner, Bo Jackson. Uh, hip dislocation is a bad, but the subsequent avascular necrosis is the real problem. Well, this is actually quite trivial. Though you might not be able to play pro basketball, uh, a broken hip certainly is not the end of life. And um, it's, it's something easily fixed. The recent review article concluded that prompt diagnosis and proper treatment of hip subluxation is important because 25% may disrupt blood supply, leading to necrosis of the femoral head. Now, 25% may means a lot less actually do. There's a, fortunately, the widespread use of MRI, that's a several thousand dollar x-ray, to evaluate players who sustain hip injuries um, makes this easier. So players with osteonecrosis, visible on MRI, at six weeks after the injury should be advised not to return to play. You know, I think this is interesting, but the point is of creating a market for a multi-thousand dollar x-ray would actually, if a person says, hey, I feel fine, then they probably are fine. If a person has persistent pain at six weeks, Again, the next step is not to return to sports. The treatment for this condition is basically rest. And if that doesn't work, you get a new hip. So they're talking about people ending their football career and going on to be businessmen at a younger age. So these are not... I don't believe uh, events that require increased medical monitoring or regulation because the symptoms of the player are pretty straightforward. So if a person has an x-ray that looks bad and they feel great, then you have to kind of go with their feelings. And as long as the leg is functioning, while the person may not want to play football, at the same time, they may not need to submit to an x-ray either. Non-contact injuries. Um, and these injuries are uh, basically from playing on an artificial surface. And so if you're a weekend warrior yourself, you may want to just play on a natural, uh, muddy surface. And this avoids the wear and tear, repetitive stress and strains that are placed on the body, especially in this place, in this case, the legs. 
and what they're mentioning here is anterior cruciate ligament injuries that result from non-contact or indirect contact. In other words, just from planting your foot and pivoting on artificial turf. And these are 1.3 times, 39 times more higher. English translation, 39% more higher, more increase on artificial turf. So it's thing is just, you know, play uh, at a park on a backyard or someplace where there's mud or dirt. Again, this is not a life-threatening injury, and for weekend warriors and even um, high school players, you can choose to play on a natural surface or stop playing when you get pain. In other words, the deal with. And so what they're talking about is doctors, people with licenses, um, need to recognize and address injury risk. That means not the injury, but the risk. And so what they're saying is risk factors for many injuries have been identified and mitigated by new rules or better equipment. That doesn't involve the doctor. Rules against head-to-head tackles, stricter return to play guidelines, and better helmet technology. And um, turf toe, a hyperflexion injury of the first uh, of the big toe, is more common in athletes play in artificial turf. And better identified through newer imaging techniques. That means expensive x-rays. And treated with conservative measures. That means no surgery or drugs, including turf toe plates and orthotics. In other words, wear a different shoe. What about general injury risk? Are there player factors that increase the likelihood of risk? A recent study, Division I football player, found that injury was more likely during periods of higher academic stress. In other words, if the student is playing sports, just pass them. Just don't, don't worry about the test. Here, you're going to get a B or an A. Relax. So these are all, you know, controllable factors. Other than I say, well, Dr. Daniels, you know, that's great inflation. Well, why give these athletes free pass, when everyone else has to work hard and study for their grades, time out. Valuable the bachelor's degree nowadays is so low that one cannot make an argument for inflating or not inflating the grade. It's not like employers are hiring people and paying them more based on their grades. So, at an illustrious institution, uh, actually, say Harvard, like right away from Harvard, back in the old days, when I went to Harvard, they actually failed people. Yes, they gave them bad grades for whatever reason. Maybe an assignment wasn't completed, whatever. Then they noticed that alumni contributions were, well, low. And they found that there's a correlation between the graduating grade point average and the amount of donations. So what did Harvard do? They raised the grades. They said, wait, wait. We admitted the best of the best, right? Best. So how could anyone deserve a grade of less than a B? So there was a period for which the only grades that were awarded were A's and B's, no matter performance. In order to produce alumni more willing to donate. Yeah. So I'm suggesting that another policy or similar policy might be reasonable to prevent sports injuries. Just saying. And of course, no one questions the value of a Harvard diploma or the grade point average or whatever. And they want 
will there ever be risk-free football? And this is what they're asking doctors. And so pundits, uh, uneducated people with opinions, would argue that playing football is inherently risky. Uh, yes. So, so Detroit Lions offensive lineman sustained a nerve cervical injury with an imposing play when an imposing player leaped into the air to deflect the pass and came down on him. And they said it was an accident, not illegal play or block. One of those freak things that happened. And um this injured player later uh, established a foundation to support research into restoring function treatments for spinal cord injuries. Now, the foundation does not call for an end of football. And what they're saying is violence is an intrinsic part of football and players accept it as part of the game which will always leave healthcare professionals with the need to put players back together again. Um, you know, this is a nice play for the necessity of the doctor, but the truth of the matter is, you're looking at, at a sport that um, has a pretty low injury rate, very, very low injury rate. So the injury rate for football players actually uh far less than that for spectators. Yeah, interesting. So again, a spectator death rate is eight per thousand and a player death rate of two at most per fifty thousand. It's a pretty darn safe sport. Yeah, you're gonna get some bombs, you get some bruises. But are you gonna drop dead? Are you gonna get paralyzed? Probably not more so than People who do more conventional things like uh, drive cars. And so what we have here then is doctors, I don't say doctors, but the medical industrial complex attempting to claim the high ground in an area where no medical incident uh, exists. So we have time for one, <laughs> one question, a couple questions. Okay. I wonder if the spectator's death risk is through the heavy tailgating uh, intoxication. Um, the death rate I calculate is just death rate from just getting up in the morning. And so I didn't count the death risk from falling out of bleachers or driving drunk to the event. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Dr. Daniel, I have a question about avoiding hospital-acquired infections. My friend was badly injured in a bicycle accident. I was wondering what natural herbal teas I could make to help boost the immune system without interfering with any medications the hospital is administering. Probably none, because he's probably on mandatory blood thinners because he's in a hospital bed. And most uh, herbs like elderberry, like olive leaf, or like clove can improve circulation and interfere with these drugs and make these drugs more dangerous. So the best thing to do would be for him to refuse the anti-blood clot medication, get up out of the bed, hop along his crutches if he can, and then you can give him teas, um, like ginger, but really, uh, Topical turpentine is probably the best bet. But getting out of the hospital as soon as possible is the most important. Just like to remind people to visit vitalitycapsules.com and um, check out our extra strength vitality capsules, which are receiving rave reviews. Okay. All right. That is it for this week. And of course, the moral of the story is. Your life is not a medical matter or a medical disease. Um, and you should enthusiastically do whatever uh, gives you pleasure or makes you happy. And you don't need 
permission from the medical industrial complex to do it. Oh,